0: Welcome to the Semper Reformative Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So we're looking this evening at Acts eleven. Just a general look down, verse 19 to verse 30, and in verse chapter 13, verse 1 to 3. Antioch citizens were not exactly the most godly people. They had a reputation for low morals and pleasure-seeking, hedonism. All around the Roman Empire, people knew them for their chariot races and their pleasures. A very low-moral city, the official cult of the city, was based on sexual perversion and immorality. And there's a church... Christian Church, right in the middle of that city. You might say, well, that was then and this is now. Well, you know, we're not far off that ourselves. Sure, we're not. We live in a time of great immorality. Just yesterday, I got sight of an email that had arrived from the Department of Finance. It was sent to what they call the faith leaders, in our society and it was sent to me yesterday morning by one of those so-called faith leaders and um, that email is asking for churches and denominations up and down the land down the province to re-register their marriage officiants you see marriage is uh, in this province anyway um People are registered as officiants for to marry others. It's no longer the building that's registered. It's the the minister, the pastor, the priest, the rabbi, whatever. And this email came late on Friday afternoon from the Department of Finance, warning the faith community, as they call it, that we are going to pass laws allowing for same-sex religious marriage. And they want to know which wedding officiants are going to be willing to marry two men or two women in a religious they call it ceremony so all registered officiants have to be re-registered and they have to state whether or not they're prepared to marry same-sex couples now we're going down into the very gutter in this country as far as morality is concerned. And yet there in Antioch, where they were in the very depths of depravity, there was a church. Um, In the midst of paganism and a religion of prostitution, uh, the church of God was thriving. It had arisen in there. Acts chapter 11 is going to tell us about that. And so we're going to look at this church and see what they were like in the midst of that awful pagan society. And we're just going to think about ourselves as well as Christians at our churches. Well, the first thing that we notice about the church at Antioch was it was a church with a very effective witness for the Lord Jesus. The very first characteristic is that it was born in the fires of evangelism. The winning of the lost was... In the very DNA of this church, it was a church that was a good witness for the Lord. It started off as a witness to the local Jewish population. If you look at verse 19, you'll see where we started to read at the bottom of that verse that these people who were scattered after the persecution that surrounded the death of Stephen the martyr... Um, they travelled right across the land they went to Phoenicia, they went to Cyprus they went to Antioch to escape the persecution but it didn't stop them preaching the gospel they preached the word to none but unto the Jews only now you can't blame them for that that's perfectly understandable it's easy to talk to people who are just like us isn't it, you know I find this out when I moved churches. I had been, I'd spent a whole lifetime of ministry in country churches, in remote places, you know, places way down around the border and everything, places where I was ministering to farmers and people who had agricultural interests. And then whenever it came to the bit that I accepted a call from a church in the very heart of Belfast, my goodness, I got a shock to the system major shock to the system. Things were entirely different. I found that talking to people was different than it was uh, out in the country. And, of course, there were people coming to church in the centre of Belfast. There were people coming to church from all nations, all skin colours, different accents. It's easier to talk to people who are just exactly like me than to people who are different in some way. And that's uh, one of the problems that we have if we're witnessing. It's likely to take place within our own comfort zone. But the Christians at Antioch soon overcame that. And they stepped outside that comfort zone. And in verse 20, the very next verse, we discover that some of them began to speak to the Greeks as well as to the Jews. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And so into this church, Antioch, there is becoming people who are saved from all different walks of life, all different nationalities, different cultural backgrounds coming in together. Matthew Henry, commenting on this, points us to Acts chapter 13 and that list of um, leaders of the local church and looks at the diversity through that. He talks about Barnabas, who was a Jew. And Simeon, who was called Niger, who was probably a person of color, as we must say these days. And Lucius of Cyrene, who would have been a Greek. And Manaan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, who was probably an aristocratic type of a person. And then, of course, Saul, who was a converted um, Jewish teacher, um, a Pharisee. And he points out that the cross of Calvary was for the benefit of all mankind. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, Peter had to learn a very important truth. He says, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. And gloriously, whenever we arrive at heaven and home and we stand in heaven's splendor, And we witness firsthand the worship of the church as we see it revealed to us in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8 to 9. Hosts of the redeemed around the throne are singing a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals for off, for thou was slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. There's great talk these days about diversity. Look at the Christian church. There's where you find real diversity. People who find their identity not in their sexuality or their skin color, but who find their identity in the fact that every one of them has been brought to Christ and been gloriously redeemed through his atoning death and will be together with him in the last day. This church witnessed, and it witnessed widely, it preached the gospel first to the Jews and then reached out to the Greeks so that all nations were welcome within the church at Antioch. Not only was it an outward-going, witnessing church, but if you see here that it was a well-taught church. Second aspect of this church that stands out for us is that a church that wanted to learn more about the faith. Wanted to learn more. It wanted to be catechized. It wanted to hold to sound doctrine. One of the things that we do uh, at Ballymacasha, and I know other churches do this as well, is we hold regular catechism classes. We teach people we teach people Christian doctrine, basic Christian doctrine. We do it using the Heidelberg Catechism. Others use other different types of systematic theologies. Barnabas must have seen that too. He must have looked at the people when he arrived. He must have looked at the church. He has seen enthusiastic Christians. They're witnessing, they're working for the Lord, they're out witnessing to other groups within society. Now, what do they need? They need basic Christian doctrine. In one church that I went to back in the 90s, I was dismayed when I used to hear one of the brethren standing in the prayer meeting. For some reason, he was praying, Lord, we know that you're not interested in doctrine. And I thought to myself, where on earth has he heard that? What has the previous pastor of this church been teaching? When Barnabas looked at the church, one of the first things he did was he went to get Saul, Paul. He went to get Saul and he brought them back. Uh, Verse 25, Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. They were a well-taught church. Wouldn't it be great to have sat for a whole year under the teaching of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas? Barnabas encouraging them. with? It would be like going to a, to, to a conference. Imagine going to a conference and, and you would be there gathered around the, the, and the preachers would come in. And there would be one. And he would be a great encouragement. He would preach the practical aspects of Christianity. And he would encourage you to live the Christian life. And then the next man would get up and he would open the scriptures. And he would teach you the doctrines of the faith. And these two great aspects of teaching grow together. One of the reasons I used to like going to the the Banner of Truth conference in Leicester was simply because of that combination. A warm form of doctrinal instruction where we would have a mixture of ministers and pastors and missionaries encouraging us in our work and in our faith. And at the same time, services where men would come and preach doctrine. These are both needed. One of the problems with modern Christianity, of course, if I may be permitted to make a slight criticism, is that doctrine has been greatly neglected. People want lively churches, and of course they want churches that are reaching out. But to do that at the expense of strict teaching of Christian doctrine is to make the church unbalanced. These people were on the one hand a church that was enthusiastic in its witness and on the other hand a church that was well-grounded in Christian truth. But there's a third thing. Not only were they a church that was reaching out in witness, a church that was well-grounded in Christian doctrine, but they were a church that had a loving heart. How do we know that? Well, I want you to look at an incident that's recorded in chapter 11 and verse 27. In those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's lovely to read the book of Acts and to see how the early church uh, was governed. Those were the days, of course, before the canon of Scripture was complete when God was using prophetic gifts to guide his people. And a group of these prophets... Came down from Jerusalem, and one of them was a man called Agabus, and he'd received a special message from God regarding an event which was soon to occur. Now we have to be really careful there. Um, the Book of Acts is uh, a book of history; it's a history book. Don't expect that this is going to happen to you. Acts is a history book; it's a record of what happened, not an instruction for us to do the same or to create expectation that somebody called Agabus should walk through the door and start doing this with us. Now, what's the message of Agabus? Agabus appears twice in Luke's record of the early church. In Acts 21, Agabus is still at Antioch, he's still ministering there, and he came to the home of Philip the evangelist, and he delivered a very visual message to Paul regarding how the Jews at Jerusalem would bind Paul and hand him over to the Romans for imprisonment and eventual execution. In Acts chapter 1, and verse 8, it says, On the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, And entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet, and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt. And deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when they had heard these things. Both we and those that in that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound. But also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That was a true prophecy. That came to pass. The prophecy in Acts chapter 11 was every bit as accurate. And um, if you look at it, it tells you that it came to pass, verse 28, came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Um, It also says in the authorised version that he signified by the Spirit. Some of the modern translations tells us that he showed them by the Spirit. Now I don't know what Agabus's method of instruction was. Um, when he spoke to Paul at Philip, the evangelist's house, he did it in a very visual way, by tying his hands and feet with a belt. Uh, What he did at this occasion, I don't know. We're not told. But we do know that his prophecy came to pass. And that, of course, um, was one of the tests of a prophet in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Um, If the prophecy didn't come to pass... If somebody stood up and says, thus says the Lord, and the Lord hadn't said it, and it didn't come to pass, they were to be taken out and stoned. Good job that doesn't apply today, isn't it? The reaction of the Antiochians. How did the Christians in Antioch re- respond to what Agabus was saying? Well, it tells us that the disciples, every man, according to his ability, this is verse 29, determined to send relief onto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. So his message was there's going to be a famine and the reaction from the church was a reaction of love. Immediately they got together, they pulled their resources and they commissioned Barnabas and Saul to take that money down to Jerusalem to put it into the treasury along with the elders of Jerusalem there and for it to be held who help the church in times of need. Very early in their existence, this is a new church at Antioch. And very early in their existence, they recognized that they're part of a family, the family of God. And they know that families look after each other and help each other in times of need. Lastly, they, for Our time's nearly up. I had to rush through that one got a witnessing church, a well-taught church, a church with a loving heart. Lastly, it's a commissioning church, a church that has an enthusiasm for missions and wants to send out laborers into the vineyard. We need to look at Acts chapter 13 for a few minutes. Um, Paul and Barnabas had completed their work in Jerusalem for a year they'd been teaching. They've been bringing gifts from the church at Antioch down to Jerusalem, no doubt ministering and preaching and teaching there. And Now they have returned to Antioch and the church is being led by this group of elders and, and prophets and oversight, um, ruling and governing the church. Both, If you want to look at elders and prophets, we're talking about ruling elders and teaching elders. Uh, that's how we would describe that in a modern sense. These people ministered to the Lord and fasted, chapter 13 and verse 2. So very briefly, what I want to say about that is that um, their ministry, their leadership of the church, had a very heavy responsibility indeed. When we preach, we, we do preach to the congregation. When we lead the church, we do it for the benefit of the congregation. We we look at the congregation, and we want to bring God's word to those who are listening. I remember Stuart Olly at once saying I think it was him, uh, who wrote in a book or who said somewhere that um, whenever you pray to, in public, in the church as a pastor, you stand in the pulpit and it's easy to pray. Now why would it be easy to pray? Well, he said the key to knowing how to pray publicly, Colin, is to keep your eyes open. And I don't know whether that's practical advice or not, but he said the reason that he did that was that when he prayed for his church, he looked at them, and he saw the people sitting in front of them, and he saw each one, and because he knew them, visited them, pastored them, He knew who they were. He knew their family backgrounds. And he looked at them. And as he prayed for them, his heart was filled with compassion for them. And he lifted his heart to the Lord and prayed for his people to learn God's word, to be blessed, to be encouraged, whatever. Because although we minister to the church, we minister mostly to the Lord. They minister to the Lord. These elders in this church, these teaching elders and ruling elders, they minister to the Lord. And that's a heavy responsibility. Our first responsibility in mission and service is to minister before the Lord, knowing that one day we will stand before God and account for every single word that we said in pulpits and classes and prayer meetings. And that's a very heavy responsibility. It's why we are very conscious that we must, well, we must illustrate our sermons. We must illustrate them very wisely. So ministry to the Lord is our primary business in the local church. But in this church, in Antioch, it's accompanied by spiritual discipline. They ministered to the Lord and they fasted. I have no doubt that these elders wanted to um, make their ministry to the Lord to be acceptable. And they fasted. And I don't know what you think about fasting as an individual, um, in its truest sense and its truest purpose. Fasting is a sign of our humiliation before the Lord. It's intended as a means of the mortification of the flesh. It's simply nothing more than spiritual discipline, taking control of our lives so that we can be better equipped to properly serve. It's not a saving ordinance. It doesn't make you a better Christian. Paul simply wrote in First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 26... I fight as one, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So here were men who were leading the church. They were ministering to the church. They were ministering to the Lord primarily. But in order that they may not become disqualified for their ministry, they keep an eye on their lives, there is spiritual discipline among their number, and they fast. And they respond to God's word. There is no doubt that these men listened to the preaching of the word and responded. And so in this incident, in chapter 13 and verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, and God speaks to us today through his word, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. I love that phrase. It sounds almost as if they're chasing them, doesn't it? Sent them away. You see, it would have been great to keep them. It'd been wonderful. It would have been wonderful to hold on. Imagine having two men like Barnabas and Saul taking the services every Lord's day. Imagine having Barnabas and Saul at your at your Wednesday evening meeting, one of them encouraging you, the other teaching you Christian doctrine. My goodness, it would be a feast of preaching for a whole year. We should want to keep men like that, shouldn't we? But when the Lord said through his word to the church at Antioch, I want to use these men. God has chosen these men to go out into all the world and bring the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. They fasted and they prayed and they commissioned them for the work and they said, now go, go. And do what the Lord has called you to do. So in the midst I hope you're getting a picture. I had to go through this very quickly. But can you see the the nature of the church at Antioch? In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the pagan environment that they're living in, and we'll come back to that next week. In the midst of the immoral society, the the awful claustrophobic immorality of that place. This is a church and there are just few Christians and already they're witnessing not just within their own fraternity but they're witnessing to the Greeks, to everybody they can meet, to the very heathens and pagans And yet not only are they enthusiastic about their witness, but they're a church that is orthodox in their doctrine, a well-taught church. And this wasn't just kind of dead orthodoxy. These people had a loving heart, reaching out to others in need. And they were a church that was well enough governed by godly elders, that when God told them to separate two of their most valuable leaders, they were prepared to commission them and send them into the field. What a church. Is it any wonder that Antioch became one of the major churches of the ancient world? And may God help us, reading about them, to become like them in our ways.